question. If penguins can't fly, then why are they dressed like fancy pilots? Question. Why does Rose say she'll never let go and then immediately lets go? Question. Why is it called a driveway if all you ever do is park on it? Question. Is the dress white and gold or is it really blue and black? Question. question. What, what are we really, really doing? doing here? Question. In these moments, I want to ask you why I do not experience silence. Why do my thoughts come crashing down like a waterfall falling onto my cerebral, building a cathedral of ocular violence? Why on my bad days am I stuck in a gray haze where the flowers are all black and white and the weeds bleed verbal violet? It's through this lens that I saw the world. Question, why have you promised us things like protecting little boys and girls when they are getting trafficked across borders by sexual hoarders? All those from their homes, some have been stole. For some, they've been sold by the same people who were meant to protect them from the world's aggressive sting. See, they have no more parents. And while we're on it, can we address the apparent? The question of why there are so many broken homes reproducing generational emotional gallstones being passed through the urethra of their soul. Why does, why does it, it feel, feel like, like life, life is just, just repeating, repeating itself? itself? Question, if God exists, why do I only ever hear silence when I ask him for assistance? I call myself Christian, but there are times in my life where I make doubting Thomas look like a saint, where my faith wouldn't let a feather walk on water. I often have more questions than answers. So who am I to educate others on what it means to be a follower? Question, if a tree falls in a forest, but no one is there to hear it, does God know how many leaves it had? And what should be a simple yes demonstrates just how unsure I am. I grew up believing God knew how many hairs were on my head, but there are times I question if he even remembers my name. Question, when I no longer wanted to go on living, why didn't he comfort me? I had this dream of becoming someone worth meaning. I used to believe having a significant other was everything. But when that relationship fell to pieces, I had a hard time believing in things like eternity, like self-worth, like being worthy of the breath I was keeping. And, and when, when I, I asked God, God for, for relief, I remember not hearing, hearing a sound. sound. Question, why does it feel like I'm just going in circles? Encircled by malfunctioning clones instead of new leaders with new thoughts that have been dug out and sought. My God, why do you allow me to question you? Is every answer truly manifest in you? If I struggle with my addiction, do I still deserve the title of Christian? Is it true that you're always with me, even in this? When I'm at my lowest and I'm struggling in the throes, are you with me toe to toe, blow for blow on my side? When I'm battling in the valley to hold my head above water and I'm flailing and wailing just to peek at the peak, are you standing there watching or with me when I sink? God, with my life for you, please. Question, do, do my, my prayers, prayers only reach, only reach God's, God's ears, ears when I'm on, on my, my knees? knees? Because if it's just altitude preventing my needs from being seen, then why aren't life's valleys praised more than its peaks? There are times I choose not to ask God any questions because I'm afraid I won't like the answer. Question, if there's a saint writing down all my sins, at what point does God stop forgiving me for them? If his blood paid for everything I could conceive, is it grace or disregard that allows me to keep being this mess of a thing? Question, God, are you an introvert? Is that why I have trouble seeing you outside my physical peripherals? Can I only find you in the home of your sanctuary? Or could it be that you're the kind of solitude that loves company? Question, if God's heart is for the refugee, why are there so many of them? And why is it his children are the ones refusing to accept them? Question. question. Do, my do my questions, questions make God angry? Question. question. Do, my do my questions, questions make God, God angry? Question. question. Do my do questions make God answer? Be still and know that I am God. Answer. My son, maybe you don't know what flying is. Answer. You can let go of something physical and still hold on to something eternal. 
answer. The answer you are looking for died so that you can have an answer. I have come so that you can have life and have it to the full. Answer, answer. I, I love, love your questions. questions. The basis of a relationship is founded in these. And more than anything, I want to know you and for you to know me. So please, question away. See, I'd, I'd rather, rather have, have you question, question me than not speak, speak to me at all. all. If there is a truth you cannot fathom, I will tell you with, with love, love to trust me. Now we have so much talent here. This is James and Andre. Well, it's Easter weekend, and some of us come here full of hope and celebration, believing all the words that we sang earlier. Others of us came dragged by family or friends. We know we saw the heel marks cross the courtyard. We'll clean it up later. No, this is, I'm so glad you're here because we're starting this series, Why God? Wrestling with the hard questions. And you know, if you are here and you already are a believer, don't check out during this series because we're gonna, we're gonna explain why our faith is not just myth. What we celebrate this weekend is historical reality of the hope God offers all humanity. And you need to understand why. Because you know, when I, was, when I was a skeptic, I kept looking for Christians who could answer some of my why questions. You know, I kept asking, how do you know that this Jesus stuff isn't just myth? You know, I wanted to know why. It's why I studied engineering at the University of Texas. I wanted to understand why. But I didn't think there were any good reasons. You know, there's this cartoon of two archeologists in Jerusalem. And one of them says, we found the tomb of Jesus. And the other one said, how do you know? And he said, because we found a bracelet nearby that said, what would I do? <laughs> and honestly, I thought the evidence for Jesus was about that sketchy. And you know, when, when you hear something that on the surface seems too good be, to be true, we question it, right? You know, like you ever driven down the, the, the road and you see those cardboard signs that say, earn $8,000 a week while you stay at home. I mean, don't you question if you really earn that much, can't you afford something better than a cardboard sign? You know, questions are okay. Doubts are okay. Do you know that the first Easter Jesus' closest followers had questions? They had doubts, but they found reasons to believe. And that's why it's okay to ask the why God questions, because if we're really willing to seek answers with an open heart and open mind, you find out how real and how trustworthy God is. That's what I found. I found that you don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And there are many intellectuals far smarter than I am that found the same when they looked at it. Like Sir Lionel Luckhoo, who was the most accomplished trial lawyer in human history. He won 254 acquittals in a row. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. I mean, imagine the razor-sharp intellect that could discern good, reasonable evidence. And Luck, who was uh, an Indian lawyer who was challenged to take the, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and put it on trial. And when he did, he changed his mind. And he wrote this in a book, The Question Answered, Did Jesus Rise? I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And Simon Greenleaf was another atheist lawyer. He wrote the book on the rules of legal evidence. And he was smarting off in class one day about the superstitious myth of the resurrection of Jesus. And some of his Christian students challenged him to take the book he wrote on the rules of legal evidence and apply it to what the, the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus' life, 
said, and he did and made a 180 and wrote in a book about his newfound faith saying this, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they'd narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead. Lee Strobel was a Yale-trained lawyer. He was the, Chicago, the editor of the Chicago Tribune, uh, legal editor. He was also an atheist. His wife came to faith in the church I used to work for, and he set out to prove that it was a myth and ended up coming to faith and writing the book, The Case for Christ. Lee was here at, at Gateway a couple years ago. In fact, his movie just came out in the theaters, The Case for Christ. Go see it during this Easter. But see, what this just goes to prove is if lawyers can find faith, any of us can find faith, right? Okay? No, many intellectuals found the same. Mortimer Adler was a, a, a philosopher and an agnostic. He was the editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Later in life, he decided to ask the question, is there any truth that can be found in the world religions? And he wrote a book called Truth in Religion, and at age 91, ends up getting baptized for faith in Jesus. And then you have C.S. Lewis, atheist professor of literature at Oxford, turned believer who wrote the book Mere Christianity. In the sciences, the head of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins, writes a book, The Language of God, where he, he talks about how as an evolutionary biologist, he found faith while decoding our DNA. Dr. Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, was convinced by the sci science of cosmology uh, uh, that And, and wrote many books about how science and faith actually are compatible. Uh, and as Camille said, he's going to be here in two weeks, so you don't want to miss that. But what was it that convinced all of these skeptics that this is true? That's what we're going to be wrestling with over the next four weeks. And today at Easter, it's appropriate that we ask the question, why Jesus? Why should we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And I only have time to scratch the surface, but the first reason is this. Because God foretold it. For 1,500 years before that first Easter, God foretold it. He put over 60 prophecies staked out along the roadway of history for 1,000 years. Signs telling the when and the where and the what and the why that God would reveal himself in a form we could relate to. That he called the Messiah. Isaiah writing 680 years before Jesus came said this. God will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is not just any ordinary child. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So the prophet Isaiah is saying this mighty God, and this is in a Jewish monotheistic society. There weren't many gods. There's only one God. And yet he's saying he will reveal himself in a form we can understand as a child, a son. And he will bring justice and righteousness and peace that will continue forever. Now, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee. He did most of his teaching by the Sea of Galilee. Now, I'll be honest. When I was still a skeptic, here's what I would have said to that. Yeah, but these so-called prophecies, I'm sure, were doctored up after the fact. I bet some Jesus fanatic, you know, took a hold of Isaiah, and after watching Jesus' life, wrote back into Isaiah what had already happened. Looked like prophecy. But we know for a fact that is not the case. 
Because in 1947, two Bedouin shepherd boys chased a goat into this cave outside Jerusalem in Qumran and found what have been called the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls were found copies of 38 of the 39 Old Testament prophets, books of the Old Testament, carbon dating before, most of them before the time of Jesus, including a complete copy of the book of Isaiah, which the National Science Foundation says new radiocarbon measurements of the Dead Sea Scrolls found by scientists at the National Science Foundation radiocarbon dated this famous book of Isaiah scroll between 335 BCE, 122 BCE. In other words, it's a known fact that Isaiah, and we have a complete copy of the book, which by the way, 2,000 years later matches ours, that it was written down before Jesus was born, telling us that the Messiah would come to Galilee, be related to David, bring justice and peace forever. Now, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is called the town of David, of King David, because he was an ancestor of David, just like Isaiah said, but he grew up in Galilee. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. God loves all people. God loves all people from every nation, every language, every religious background. But do you realize that of all the sacred scriptures of the world's religions, the Hebrew Christian scriptures are the only ones where God is addressing all the nations over and over. 500 times through the prophets, God addresses all the nations. He told Abraham in 2000 BC that he was gonna create the Jewish nation. Why? To bless all the nations, to preserve his words through the prophets and ultimately to, to provide his Messiah. Why? Because he loves all people. But who is God and what's he like? I mean, if you, if you really just stop and think about that. You know, if there is a creator, God, he created our four dimensions of space-time, right? Which means he must exist beyond our four dimensions, beyond our dimensionality. So we can't possibly go figure out, go find him and figure out what he's like. Which means unless he chooses to reveal himself, we're just guessing, Right? We're just guessing. And the truth is not all gods are equal. I talked to an anorexic woman uh, here at Gateway once who told me that God told her that she was fat and taking up too much room. So she was starving herself to death for God? Really, is that God? Is that what he's like? I mean, how, how can we know? Or is God the one who tells people to blow themselves up because it's an instant ticket to heaven? Is that God? Is that what he's like? How do we know? We know because God told us how we can know. In Isaiah, he says this, tell us what the future holds so that we may know you are God's. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, referring to Messiah, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, I am God, who foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past, was it not I, the Lord? There is no God apart from me a righteous God and a savior, there's none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Now remember, this isn't Christian. This was written 680 years before Jesus was even born. And yet God says, how can you know if it's really the one true God? Only God knows the future. And he said, and I'm gonna tell the whole earth in advance what I'm gonna do through my servant, through this Messiah, that everyone on planet earth can know and turn back to me and be saved, be set right in right relationship with our creator. Why Jesus? Because God loves us and he wants us to know him. 
intimately. See, God created you and me and all of us for relationship with himself. You can't love someone, though, that you don't know. And that's why God told us in advance where and when so we would know it is truly him. It's amazing, around 530 B.C., the prophet Daniel, Jewish prophet, was in captivity in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. He's praying about the Jewish nation's future when an angel comes and says this, recorded in Daniel 9. Now, he's going to tell the timeline of when the Messiah is going to come. So pay attention to this. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed ones, the word Meshach or Messiah, comes, the ruler comes, will be seven sevens and 62 sevens or 69 sevens. It, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with streets in a trench in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, Messiah, will be cut off, killed, and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this angel says, a decree is going to be given to rebuild Jerusalem, and that's when the time clock starts ticking down until Messiah. Now, I'm going to save you the church math, okay? You can, you can go out on our website. I've gone through it before. That's out on the web. But basically, here's the thing. Artaxerxes was a Persian king who declared that, that Israel, that Jerusalem should be rebuilt in 445 B.C., if you take the 69 times 7 or 483 years and you take it out, you end up in the time of Jesus' ministry. Amazing. But even beyond that, even if you don't buy the church math, it says the Messiah is going to be cut off. The word is katat in Hebrew, killed violently. And then Jerusalem and the sanctuary or temple will be destroyed. History tells us when this happened. 70 AD, the Roman general Titus marches through Jerusalem, levels Jerusalem, levels the temple. The temple has not been rebuilt yet, 2,000 years later. So this tells us the Messiah, according to Daniel, had to come before 70 AD. I don't find any better candidates than Jesus. Do you? And I told you a couple weeks ago, as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, the week he was going to be crucified, he looks over Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, oh, if you had only known what would bring you peace, how long I've, I've longed to put you under my wings like a chick protects, like a, a, a hen protects her chicks, but you would not have me. And now your enemies won't leave one stone in another because you rejected the time of God's coming to you. See, when, when we reject God, when we reject his leadership because we want to do it our way, we know what's best for our lives. God gives us what we think we want. But the problem is it ends up in a world that keeps trying to control and dominate and fight and war to rule over each other. We all play God, and that's the problem. Why Jesus? Because God loves us, and he wants us to know him intimately but also because all people reject God's leadership. And you think about it, everyone knows something's wrong. We just don't know what it is, right? We, we long for peace, but we grab a little and then it goes away. We want joy, but it somehow keeps eluding us. We want to love people, but we can't even love the people we love most. What's wrong? Well, God's been telling us. When we push the source of life and love out of our lives, we only get what we can come up with. God created us for his love, to experience his love, and out of that, to learn how to love one another. But love is a tricky thing, isn't it? Because you can't make someone love you. 
You know, you, you can woo them, you can try to win their trust and their love, but you can't force love. And God is love. And so God won't force us to love him, which means we can truly push him out, subtly or not so subtly. We can push him out and reject him. And the truth is every human has done that, all of us. You want proof? Just think about yesterday. How much of your day was spent thinking about what God might want and how to get God's will done versus what you wanted to get done? How about the day before? Day before? Been there, done that, me too. See, this is the human problem. This is the human challenge, and yet God loves us despite that. And so he foretold what he would do to win us back, to win back our love and our trust so that we will follow him, so that we can learn what real love is like. Why Jesus, though? Well, because justice requires payment. And so Isaiah in Isaiah 53 tells us why the Messiah has to suffer and die. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Because we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or wrongs of us all. Why Jesus? He came to pay for all our wrongs. Why? So that God could be just in forgiving us and taking us back. See, what Jesus did is he removed every barrier between every human and their creator except one, our pride. He's not gonna force us against our will. And we in our pride can still push God out. But he's removed every barrier so that if we simply turn back and, and receive his forgiveness, ask for his forgiveness, and and start to learn to love him as much as he loves us, that's all he requires. That's why Christians celebrate Easter. That's what he did. He made it so simple. A child, anyone of any intellect can turn back to their creator and be made right. And you know, you've probably heard it said that all the world's religions basically say the same thing. I've studied them. They definitely don't all say the same thing about God, but they definitely do all say the same thing about morality. It's actually uncanny how if you look across history and across the world's religions, how we have this common moral code that comes out. It's as if God wrote it in our hearts. And in fact, that's what he said he did. C.S. Lewis, the literary scholar from Oxford, summarizes this moral law that's commonly found in all the religions. Do not harm another person by what you do or say. Basically the golden rule. Honor your father and mother. Be kind toward brothers and sisters, children, and the elderly. Do not have sex with another person's spouse. Be honest. Don't steal. Don't lie. Care for the weaker or less fortunate. And dying to self is the path to life. So think about that. In just about every world culture, every world religion, for all history, we've basically agreed on right and wrong. And yet, how have we done? Has anybody perfectly kept the Ten Commandments or the Buddhist Eightfold Path, which is actually more morally rigorous, or the Five pa pa uh, Pillars of Islam, or never had a bad karma day, only good karma? No. No, the history of humanity is we're all screw-ups. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, atheists. Something's wrong. We all need help. And the question is, is God standing there ready to condemn us for our wrongs or will he be merciful and forgive us and help us? 
Why Jesus? Because he answered that question for all of us. Jesus said, for I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We all hope that God will be merciful and forgive our wrongs. Jesus proved why God forgives. It was foretold and confirmed in history. You know, in fact, David in 1000 BC, 1000 years before Christ, as if having a vision through the eyes of the Messiah hanging on the cross, watching the Roman soldiers rolling dice for his robe, which the eyewitnesses said happened, says this in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All my bones are out of joint. And this is before crucifixion was even a known punishment. My heart is turned to wax, it's melted within me. My mouth is dry like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. A thousand years later, this happened. As Jesus hung on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he experienced all of the horrors of every murderous thought, every lustful, hate-filled, spiteful, jealous, envious thought, every big and little horrendous deed of all humanity, and it killed him. But God foretold it. Three different prophets over three different centuries saying the Messiah would be pierced through his hands and his feet to pay for our wrongs. And it wasn't just biblical history. Non-biblical history confirmed it. You know, in 93 AD, a Roman Jewish historian, Josephus, writes this. Now there arose about that time a source of further trouble in one Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but he's reporting. A wise man who performed surprising works. A teacher of men who gladly welcomed strange things. He led away many Jews and also many of the Gentiles. He was the so-called Christ or Messiah. When Pilate, acting on information supplied by the chief Jewish rulers among us, condemned him to the cross. It's real history. And Justin Martyr, writing the emperor of Rome in 150 AD, writes this. That Jesus performed miracles you can easily satisfy yourself from the acts of Pontius Pilate. But the words, they pierced my hands and feet, refer to the nails which were fixed in Jesus' hands and feet on the cross. And after he was crucified, his executioners cast lots for his garments and divided them among themselves. That these things happen, you may learn from the acts which were recorded under Pontius Pilate. Now think about this, friends. Here's Justin Martyr, a hundred years later, telling the emperor of Rome that these prophecies were actually fulfilled. You can go check out in your own governor's recordings. It'd be like me saying to the President of the United States, that these things happen, it was recorded in the Library of Congress, go look in your own books. This is real history. Jesus paid for our wrongs. History not only recorded it, but felt it. You know, in 760 BC, Amos, the prophet, said this, the earth will tremble for your deeds at that time, says the sovereign Lord. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it's still day and you will wear funeral clothes and shave your heads as signs of sorrow as if your only son had died. Now only God could do this, could foretell and record the darkening of the sun at noon as his son dies and yet biblical history but also non-biblical history records it. Matthew writes, at noon 
Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it wasn't just the disciples that reported it. Thallus wrote a Roman history in AD 52. His works were, were uh, survived, quoted in other works. Julius Africanus quotes Thallus, talking about the crucifixion of Jesus in this Darkness that covered the earth, saying it was an eclipse of the sun. But Africanus notes, says Thallus in the third book of his histories, explains away this darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably, because it was during the season of the Paschal full moon that Christ died. In other words, a solar eclipse can't happen during a full moon. The moon's on the wrong side of the earth, and Passover always happens during a full moon, and Jesus was crucified during the Passover. Flagin, a Roman historian writing in 140 AD, records that at the time of Tiberius Caesar, at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour or noon until the ninth. Friends, this is real history. And maybe you don't need all these reasons to have faith. Maybe you do. But you got to seek them to find them. And that's what many people have found here. You know, Becca was an atheist for many years and thought she had lots of great reasons. And then someone invited her gateway and she came and she started to hear things and she came to faith, but her faith was shallow and then it got tested. Listen to her story of seeking answers. I met a man at my gym named Bunto Skiffler. Um, I was speaking with him and I don't remember what we were talking about, but at one point I remember grabbing my cross and saying, I love my Jesus. And uh, he gave this kind of curled up smirk, you know, like, and I, I immediately knew that he wasn't a believer. So I asked him and he said, oh no, I'm the hardest atheist you'll ever meet. And, uh, and I just knew I had to start talking with this guy immediately. Conversations with this guy brought up the floods of doubt that I had used to deny God not so long ago. When he would challenge me, my faith would plummet. and. I immediately had to find out, you know, is this the truth? Is what he's saying true? Is there another explanation for this, this, this fact he's giving me? I wasn't trying to figure out how can I bend this and say, oh no, it, it has to be the opposite. But I had to find out if it was true. I had to find out, um, you know, is there another side to this um, concept or is this how it is? His viewpoint of science disproving God um, basically led me to find and realize that I needed to look at the science. Um, but I also needed to be unbiased, and I needed to, um, to find truth, because I wanted to find truth. Um, I didn't want to believe in an imaginary being. I began researching again. I started watching hours upon hours of debates on atheism versus theism and uh, creationism versus evolution. I read about geological strata, radioactive decay, carbon dating, Einstein's relativity and thermodynamics. The list goes on and on. But within science, there's so many mysteries, so many unanswered things and so many assumptions. Within atheism, there's a certain amount of faith too. The same that holds with the Christian faith, you have to have a certain amount of, you have to have faith in the evidence to take an atheistic standpoint. Day by day, my faith was growing stronger and stronger. 
I have to appeal to the man that helped me most in my journey. His name is Hugh Ross, and he is an astrophysicist follower of Christ. Out of all of my research, his talks and testimony have influenced me the most. The truth is, some people don't need the scientific knowledge or even full knowledge and understanding of the Bible to be faithful followers. I needed to find God in both scripture and in science. I don't know why. I still struggle with things like stress and fear and, uh, tr and trust, um, but having God's love, presence, protection, and forgiveness makes life and all of its challenges a whole lot easier. You know, like Becca said, some don't need that many reasons. Others need lots of reasons. The reasons are there. Uh, that's what I found as well. But you know, with all the reasons and all the intellectual reasons, the real challenge is it all actually comes down to a heart issue. And you know, the biggest proof for me that I can't give to you is how real God has been in my own life. You know, how I could have turned back any time. He gives us free will. I didn't want to because of how the promises that Jesus says really are true and how he really leads us into a better life. And maybe you're not there yet. Maybe your next step is join us every Sunday during this series and, and, and start to find out some of the reasons and maybe just pray this simple prayer. God, if you really are there, open my eyes. Help my unbelief. And during that time, read the Gospel of John, the, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus in the New Testament. You know, and, and, and find out. Because what I discovered is that I just didn't know what I didn't know yet. Why Jesus? Ultimately, because Jesus wants to give us new life. He wants to lead us into a new life. You know, David and Isaiah foretold the resurrection a thousand years before. David said, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your godly one to rot in the grave. But David did rot in the grave. But he was speaking of Jesus, the Messiah to come. And Isaiah also foretold that first Easter in Isaiah 53 when he says, Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. He's risen. He's alive. And he did it to bring you life. New life. An eternal quality of life. An eternal quality of life that can start now. It grows with love and joy and peace in our hearts more and more as we trust him more and more, but it's also a life that never ends. It never ends. You know, in the movie, The Case for Christ, uh, former atheist professor C.S. Lewis is quoted as saying this. If Christianity is false, it doesn't matter. But if it's true, it's the most important thing in human history. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Some of you here today, you believe. You've believed maybe for a long time, but you've been treating God as moderately important. That's not what God is. He loves you more than any other. He did everything to show you won't hold anything back from you. And isn't today the day to stop treating him as moderately important and to get serious about your relationship with him, to seek him with all your heart? What do you have to lose and if you don't even believe this yet, what do you have to lose finding out? I mean, think about what Jesus promised. If, if it is true, he promised forgiveness, past, present, and future. He promised to adopt us as his own sons and daughters forever. 
security. But not only that, he promised he wants to give us life. Jesus said this, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose is to give life in all its fullness. You know, we're afraid God wants to rob us of life. Like, if we turn our lives over to God, he's going to ruin it. He's going to mess it up. Nothing could be further from the truth. He knows what it takes for you to live the life that you're desperately longing for. He wants to remove our anxious, stressful burdens. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, we fear God is the one who wants to burden us. He wants to make us feel guilty. No, he wants to remove all that and set us free. And Jesus said, when you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And this is my commandment. Love each other the same way I've loved you. And that Easter, Jesus demonstrated the love of God. This unconditional, sacrificial love that gives itself for the sake of the other. And he did it so we can reconnect to the source of love so that his love and his joy can start to overflow through us to all our relationships. Why Jesus? Because that's what the world needs. So I'd like to lead us in prayer and then I'd like to sing a prayer with you. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for Easter. We celebrate what you did. Not only that... You did it, but that you foretold it and that you confirmed it in history so that we could know, so that our faith could have a solid rock to stand on. And God, maybe some of us here today, we didn't realize that you made it so simple that a child, someone with any, any intellect, no matter what we've done or haven't done, we can turn back to you and be made right with you. And if that's you and you've never opened your heart to Christ, why not do it today? Why not give your life back to him on the day that he gave his life for you? He knows your heart already. Just tell him in your heart, God, I want what Jesus did to count for me. I want your forgiveness. I want your leadership. Come lead me, God. And thank you, God, that no matter where we are, that's all you require. And God, forgive those of us who keep turning away from you so regularly. We keep going our own way, even though we know your way leads to life. Help us turn back. Thank you that you always take us back, no matter how far we've wandered. And that's why today we celebrate you, Jesus, because you are so kind and forgiving and merciful, because you love us so.